Hello, and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Achandrika, and I'll be your host. So, Freelance Pod is back. Yes, we've been on hiatus for a couple of months, but uh, the podcast will now be back, and you'll get a new episode every month. So where has Freelance Pod been? Well, at the end of last year, I was pretty ill for quite a few months, and then at the start of this year, I was working on a few other projects, all of which have pretty much been postponed and hopefully not cancelled thanks to the coronavirus. So I won't talk about them right now, um, but hopefully I will in future episodes. So back to this episode, it is the live show from November last year when author Gemma Milne joined me on stage. Gemma's book, Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It, will be out on April the 23rd. It's about how we report on science and tech. And I think with what's going on with coronavirus at the moment, it is a really helpful read. So if you're interested in Gemma's book, please do check it out online, pre-order it if you fancy it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing her book launch. Oh, are we ready to get started? Thank you. (laughs) Well, hello everyone. Welcome to this recording of Freelance Pod. Thank you so much for leaving your beautiful, warm, toasty homes. I was up at like nine this morning to teach podcasting. And going to central London, it was really painful. And I'm on a full sleeve of hall soothers. Um, so I've been ill all of November. So thank you so much for coming to join us. Um, so Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has changed um, the news and creative jobs. My name is Chandrika Chakrabarti. I'm a freelance journalist and podcaster. And this is Gemma Milne, who I met through the podcast. Yes. When you messaged me to tell me when my episodes was a bit quiet. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was my hearing or whether it was your podcast. No, you were correct. <laughs> and then I listened to it on the Alexa, which I don't use anymore. Um, and one episode was quieter. And the reason I don't use Alexa anymore is, um, see, Alexa's usually blue when it lights up. And then when it's offline, it goes red. Mine started going yellow and green. So I think it had a poltergeist. So I've put it away <laughs> in a drawer. Um, but could you introduce yourself? Oh gosh, um, when we're probably going to get onto this, I have have trouble introducing myself. Um, Yeah, I'm a a writer and soon-to-be author. I am predominantly focused on science and technology. I'm kind of just, I don't know, I'm obsessed with how the world works and I kind of strive to find any opportunity opportunity I can to kind of dive into that, whether it's writing or podcasting or speaking or, um, or books, as it were. Here are some examples of hype that I tweeted the other day. I got them from many different news sources, mostly Fox News. Um, (laughs) How robots are stealing human jobs. Artificial intelligence. Should we be afraid? Be afraid. This is another headline telling us to be afraid. Oh, just be afraid. Be afraid. Okay, cool. The era of easy deepfake videos is upon us. Mm. Has anyone seen any good headlines like that around? The actual news is also terrifying. Um, (laughs) There's that too. Um, But, so... Would you call this hype in science and tech reporting and like why are we getting headlines like this? Yeah, I mean, it's. I suppose the way I think about hype, um, or at least the way I sort of introduce it in the book, is that um, the book's called Smoke and Mirrors, which is obviously a really famous um, magic trick. And I, I think of magic as consensual fooling. So you walk, you know, you're here in a theatre, you'd walk into a magic show knowing that you're going to be fooled and you're giving permission to be fooled to the person um, who's on stage. Exactly. Um, whereas lying um, is is non-consensual fooling. We we just call that lying. And hype is kind of what I think of as sort of accidental fooling where sometimes the person putting the message out is not necessarily trying to 
trick people or trying to kind of, I don't know, make the wrong idea happen or, or, you know, deliberately mislead. But because of sometimes lack of context or lack of information or whatever, the person reading it takes it in the wrong way and then there can be sort of dire consequences as a result. Um, so that's basically what I've, what I've written about. But I really think of hype as a tool because at the end of the day, we need hype, right? We need to, um, I don't know, say that quantum computing is really amazing because otherwise we're going to go like, what is that? That's too complex. I'm not interested. The hype has some good uses. Yeah, well. for sure. Well, could of you, course. Yeah, can you think of anything recently and anything that benefited from being hyped up? I mean, anything, right? Us saying we're doing this awesome show, please come along. That's hype, right? We didn't know if it was going to be any good. Um, but, you know, I think I think the point is is that we we use the tools of, of marketing, of kind of... Um, I don't know, extra sort of language to make things, um, I don't know, dress things up. And also, I don't know, sometimes to kind of um, showcase to people that something has real potential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of technology does have amazing potential and it's true to tell people that, yeah, quantum computers are amazing and they're going to revolutionize the world. AI is going to revolutionize the world. Um, there's elements of truth in that. But at the same time, without the kind of uh, and this is why, or this is only one side of the story, or the kind of nuance and context without, around that, um, it can come across to a lot of people as lying. Also, I find it really interesting that people tend to not like the idea of being caught up in hype. They, they feel like they've been sort of scunnered or fooled or, or misled, and it's not their fault. And, you know, you, you think about it a lot with, like, trends, for instance, like, oh, oh, that's so hypey, that's not for me. You know, I'm, I'm too cool for that. You know, if you think about, like, um, I don't know, bad that people were like, like oh I like seen through it yeah like yeah. Or, or I liked it before it became cool I, I knew about that band before they is anyone you guilty know. of that in here <laughs> yeah so I, I don't know I think that hype is something that people tend to kind of be shun but at the end of the day we need it because you know there's so much information out there I mean look at the internet right you're scrolling through Twitter what's going to make you stop um, and it's going to be something that's had some form of shall we say, engineering around the message in order to get people to listen. Um, yeah, I used to work in advertising. That is literally the, the core of your job when you work at an advertising agency is how do you get people to see through all the messaging, cut through all the messaging, and, and hype is that tool. Mm, we're going to get onto advertising in a bit. <laughs> um, so there are some real-world consequences of hype. We spoke before when we were planning this about climate reporting mm. and about anti-vaxxers, which actually gets into science fraud. Can you tell us a bit about climate reporting and the kind of hype around that? Because it's kind of in the news at the moment. Yeah, so climate reporting is kind of an interesting one in the sense that, and then the same with vaccines as well, but with climate reporting, I suppose you're kind of on the, the right side if you're trying to say certain things. Um so with climate reporting, it's, it's super, super complex. Climate change is an extremely complex topic. And sort of saying outright, you know, the world is going to end because of climate change gets people to listen. And there's a lot of reporting that's like that, that's kind of um, amped up, like uh, scary reporting. It's called climate crisis now. It's been yes. re- rebranded. Yeah. And, and rightly so, right? But at the same time, without the nuance, um, it's quite easy to sort of unpick that. And the problem is, is that, if you kind of go too far with a particular message and then somebody says, oh, but it's not true in this context, you kind of undermine the message. And unfortunately, some people see that undermining as a lack of trust or, oh, actually, that message is, you know, wholly not true because of this one piece of information. And they kind of push the other side. And that's a lot of time what happens with, with vaccines, although a lot of vaccine stuff is based on fraudulent information. But the point being is that uh, you need you need that 
sort of extreme way of talking about things to get people to listen, particularly when it's a sort of activist mode. Um, but it's so easy to undermine if you're kind of not giving those extra pieces of information to kind of back up what you're saying, particularly if you're someone that's relatively pedantic that starts to ask it and then, you know, broadcasts those, this is the problem with this, that and the other. And you see it quite a lot. There was actually an article I, I retweeted today because I actually thought it was really great, um, picking apart the book by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. And his, you know, you could argue that Matthew Walker's general point is that, you know, sleep is important and we should pay attention to it. And, you know, it's bad for your health if you're not cognizant of what's happening with your sleep. And this person's kind of gone through and said, he said this sentence, that doesn't make sense, said the sentence, that doesn't make sense, so on and so forth. And I suppose the worry around these kind of topics is that are you going to get people to sort of turn away from the original message which still has a lot of real meaning in it um just because you've unpicked a few things that are not completely backed up so you, you've seen it exactly in climate change reporting with anti-vax where people say ah but you said this but actually it's that and therefore all of it's wrong i don't trust you so there's a lot of kind of I don't know, a consideration within the science uh, journalism community is how do you imbue trust? How do you make sure you're saying things that people listen to, that they pay attention to, without losing people by oversimplifying or, you know, saying things that are too, you know, hyperbole that people just pick apart? And that's kind of something that, you know, discussions are had in the sort of circles I'm in every single day. You know, one example, for instance, would be there was a thread going around, um, one kind of um, group that I was in about the Daily Mail were looking for new science reporters, freelancers, and they were saying, please, you know, we, we want people to come write about health for the Daily Mail. And people were like, how dare you ask us to do that? You published ter terrible science and you're the, the problem and da 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 da. They weren't saying this directly to the person. I, don't, I think they kind of came in the thread and then left it immediately. Um, but the point being is that a lot of people were saying, you know, this is not helpful for us to go and do this. But then the other side of the argument is, well, if you're a you know, credible science journalist and there's an audience here that needs to hear a message or you believe needs to hear a message, is it not useful if you go and place yourself in those kind of places? So there's a lot of debate around how do you get messages across that you feel need to be particularly when it comes to kind of, I don't know, public health or the future of our planet, <laughs> shall we I say? I probably know who put that person. <laughs> I felt um, for them as we shame. <laughs> Although I didn't, I must admit I didn't pitch because I was on the side of... I wouldn't do that or I don't think it's... So it's about having your byline under a brand that you think other people might not trust. Um, and this might just be an example of Yes, I think, well, I think that, and I think, you know, there was a lot of worry around the fact that you're not writing your headlines, so there's a lot of misconstrue around what you're doing, but also, um, you know, we were going to talk about this later on, but also personal brand, you know, I don't want to be associated with misinformation, which there is a lot of in certain newspapers, unfortunately, deliberately or not, that's for someone else to decide, but... Um, you know, it's, but it's difficult at the same time because talking about, there's a sort of perception that science and tech is not cool enough if you don't kind of create some kind of hyperbole around it. You have to say robots are going to steal our jobs in order for people to listen. Um, but then my sort of argument with these kind of narratives is that not only is it, well, incorrect, um, you kind of lose the intention that the writer normally has. So robots are going to steal a job, let's take that as an example. What the reality of that phrase is, is that, you know, middle man managers or chief execs are making decisions to automate processes and, or, and that makes people redundant as a result. That's not as fun a headline as robots are going to steal your jobs. 
but it's, it's the reality of it. And the, you know, the problem is, is yes, you're not getting as many clicks, but at the same time, you're also not ensuring that accountability is had. It's the, it's the incorrect message. If the message is about how do we ensure that, you know, automation doesn't rip through society in a bad way, we need to be talking about the fact that it's decisions made by humans and not place the blame on the Terminator. It's, it's just the incorrect message. It might give you more clicks, but it's, it's not going to help in the long term. So I suppose a lot of my argument is, is how do you say things that have that level of intention and that level of need and reach and also make it interesting? My argument is a science tech is always interesting and there's you just have to work a little bit harder to make it interesting and true at the same time, but that's just me. Do you think also with the robots stealing our jobs and who knows what else... Um, what about the kind of emotion it provokes? Do you think that's yeah, of an course. part of it? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's obviously directly re- related to the kind of fear around immigrants and, and all these sorts of things. This idea of your job being stolen is something that's been around for a really long time. It's really like immigrant rhetoric, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Like, yeah, it, and, it, and it works, quote unquote, in terms of um, selling clicks and selling newspapers. Um, and it's also the sort of thing that kind of sticks really easily you know the amount of times I've met someone uh, you know and I've said oh I'm a science tech writer and they say oh what do you think about the robots stealing your jobs you know it's something that people kind of remember and that's good because the message needs to go out this idea of automation but the problem is is it kind of stops there Um, it stops that kind of next level of critical thinking that's required to kind of realize the reality behind that statement um I've actually forgotten your question, but that, that was my that was supposed my point is it was, it was about the emotion and also yes yeah it's like a, it's like a simple binary robot bad me good yeah robot steal from me sad but it's funny though because the emotion you know one of the things I thought I originally wanted to call the book blinkered um, why is that because I think of hype as literally like blinkering you and for anyone who can't understand my scottish accent because everyone tells me that when i say blinkered it sounds like blankered but i'm saying blinkered with an eye um like you know for the horses right and and you put tunnel vision yes you put you put blinkers on horses so they can only see the thing in front and don't get distracted and a hype kind of essentially puts you into only one realm of thinking and stops you from thinking about other things that sounds a little bit conspiracy right you're we're going to see robots are stealing their jobs so that people don't question the fact that ceos are making these decisions but that is what's happening if you keep othering and kind of giving that emotion and that anger um, and, and placing it on an object, you're essentially stopping any kind of accountability, responsibility of human beings. And that, you know, saying CEOs are making these decisions and you can't do anything about it is highly emotional, but it can feel kind of, I don't know. I mean, look at it the other way, right? Um, some people talk about robots are going to steal jobs, so let's do a robot tax. Why don't we tax the robots? Oh, they should be paying taxes, robots. So they're going to steal our jobs. Right, so that's exactly, right? So it makes sense. But if you put it in the other realm, if you change it into the same way that I said, so you've got CEOs are making these decisions, instead of saying robot tax, it's we're going to charge companies for being innovative in the way that they do their production. We're going to charge companies for doing things faster. We're going to charge companies for doing things safer, better, da-da-da-da-da. Suddenly you have this message that people are like, oh, why are, you, why are you stopping good companies from moving with the times? That's really bad. So it's like, it, depending on what side you're on, these kind of narratives can work in your favour. I'm all for the opinion of saying we should say CEOs are making decisions, but then say let's tax robots. But that's because it works for my intention about my message. But at the end of the day, you're still being 
blinkered into only realizing one thing and not kind of opening yourself up to the kind of broader system um, that's happening behind. I'm a nerd. I think systems are absolutely fascinating. And I think it's a shame that as communicators, as journalists, as whatever, within science and tech, I think we sometimes kind of disregard the audience and kind of be like, oh, they're, they're not interested in hearing that whole story. They just want to hear about the robots still in their jobs. And you're like, no, this is super fascinating and important as well at the same time. So, um, yeah, I think the emotion is key, but it's just sometimes the wrong emotion, in my opinion. And do you think it also keeps the audience feeling helpless? I can't do yeah. anything about this wave 100%. of robots or immigrants or name a third thing that's supposed to be yeah, bad. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you, you see that with a, AI in general. This, You know, we talk a lot about, um, I don't know, the AI is going to take over or super intelligence or we're going to get to the point, the singularity when the, the, the intelligence of computers take over humans. Yeah, that is the definition of a singularity. Yes, some companies are moving towards and building general intelligence. But if you tar all AI, and I'm putting that in verse commas because a lot of it isn't really AI, with one brush, you essentially give people a sort of ticket to be like, well, there's nothing I can do, so I can't really do anything about it. Whereas, you know, we can vote in politicians that say they want to regulate, we can buy from companies that act better in that sense, or, or whatever, depending on your own moral standing. But the problem is if that information is not out, people just, as you say, feel completely helpless mm. and also feel like they can't have an opinion on science mm. and tech. I think, you know, I studied maths at university and every time I say to someone, I studied maths, you know, you, you get two answers. You either get one person who says, oh, me too. Or you get someone's like, oh man, I was terrible at maths at university. Oh, I, I, can't, I can't do any maths. And there's this sort of fear around, um, I think, science in general. Like we kind of feel insecure about not being good at it or whatever. And that completely shuts off people from feeling like they can be part of the discussion and part of the regulation part of you know it's great what's happening at the moment with all the discussion on google and facebook but that should be happening on a much deeper sense people should feel much more empowered to do that and i see it as my role to kind of try and allow that to happen as opposed to just putting messages out because i know it's gonna sell to an editor it means my pitching rate is uh, not always that great but <laughs> also most journalists have arts backgrounds themselves well, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's I think it's about empowerment and, you know, letting people say it's okay for you to have a view on that. If anything, we, we need more people with more um, kind of diversity and thought picking apart tech. If we only have people that have tech backgrounds picking apart tech, I mean, I d we're not really going to move very far forward, I don't think. So, but the, but the problem is, I think a lot of people that I speak to sort of say, oh, I could never write a piece about quantum computing or I don't have the ability to research biotech or something like that. And it's like, yeah, this stuff's kind of hard, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, you know, trying or, you know, people like me who do have the knowledge, we should be sharing it in a way that allows people to kind of come in it's not about dumbing it down and explaining it it's about going here are the kind of issues here are the discussions um i don't know it's a little bit i don't know throw away but one of the things i always say when i'm doing talks about it is you know i, I say to people in the audience you know how many people here play a musical instrument you would get a few people how many people play three musical instruments maybe you have one sort of smug person very talented of course um but then you say okay who here has an opinion on like Beyonce's new album or something and almost everyone will put their hand up and it's I think it's the same with science and tech you don't need to know the inner workings of what's happening in science and tech to have an opinion on what's going on but if the information's not out there it's, it's simply inaccessible and what do we think the Beyonce's album of science and tech is <laughs> I mean probably probably AI at the moment or you know and, and also just general like regulation around particularly social media 
Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff sort of that we, you know, the space industry, I don't think it, it we, we talk a lot about space as this very aspirational, like, wow, Elon Musk is going to Mars and blah, blah, blah. And that, that's cool. That's awesome. And that, that is really important. But space um, is an industry like any other, like the oil industry, like the retail industry, like the travel industry. And the stories about what are the problems within this industry um, are not shared. And a lot of times it's because the, the people like myself communicating it don't want people to be upset with the industry because it needs public momentum it needs support of the public in order to get funding and so on and so forth but i mean there's huge issues around wealth distribution um in terms of future space there's huge issues around um space junk and kind of sustainability around space huge issues around elon musk not paying attention to isa or nasa there's there's massive issues there but they're not really talked about in the same realm as like you know, wow, a new launch has happened or we found a new exoplanet or, or so on and so forth. There's quite a focus on the whiz-bang of science as opposed to the sort of critical thinking um, that happens in other industries normally. Yeah, the whiz-bang. Um, well, I crunched my whole soother. there. Um, <laughs> Hope you're picking up in the microphone. <laughs> anyone in the audience who would like to know more about the space industry and would like to know maybe when the next flight they can go on is coming out? <laughs> We'd be keen to know more. Okay, so let's move on to your career and how you've got to this position now where you're doing all this freelance stuff and you're writing a book because that's not what you thought you would be when you started out. Um, we touched on the how you introduce yourself at parties. Would anyone in the audience like to jump in with all of their several job titles? <laughs> no. Multi-hyphenates nowadays, as they're called, or whatever. Yeah, triple threats. I just go with Jen as a podcaster. I can't be bothered with the rest of it. What do you say these days? I normally just say writer, to be honest. Sometimes I'll say science and tech writer. Um, but I have a whole, I mean, I think a lot of writers have this, this whole kind of insecurity around whether or not you're a real writer um, and, and what, what accounts for being a real writer. You know, if you write for, I don't know, brands or you do, you happen to do one other thing that isn't writing, then you can't be a pure writer. Um, so I start, I've had a lot of stuff around that. But um, so before the book, I, I really struggled. I would sometimes say consultant even though I don't really do that much consulting. I'd sometimes say podcaster. I'd sometimes say speaker, but you sound so wanky when you say that. So I was like, I can't, I'm not interested in myself as that. So I tend no, to be writer. No, don't like that. Because it's like, I speak to, we're speaking yeah. now. Well, exactly. Yeah. You exactly. just do it standing up. <laughs> yeah. And not even all the time, actually. So yeah. I think as well, though, I, I, as you said, like I didn't, I, my plan was not to be a writer. I mean, if you'd said to me three years ago, oh, you're going to be you know, on stage in a podcast telling people about your career as a freelance writer. I would have not believed you. I'd probably laugh at you. Um, so I don't know. I think a lot of it is also wrapped up in my kind of, I have a lot of, I've always had huge respect for writers and therefore kind of maybe not necessarily associated with it because I've felt like I'm being above myself or something. So you kind of hyped up writers in your yeah. mind. Well, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. Certainly in my own head. But I don't know, I think there's quite a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of discussion within the sort of freelance writing community around, you know, if you do corporate copywriting, for instance, do you still count as a journalist? Yeah, I, you've like, got to make money, yeah. Right, but like, I, so I like, for instance, don't tend to call myself a journalist, you know, I'm quite uncomfortable with that as a title, even though I do do journalism. I suppose it's like who you are versus what you do, I'm not sure, but um, it's certainly something that I've struggled a lot with. And after I got made redundant, um, I did a talk at a um, sort of women in tech um conference and it was that was basically what I was saying it was like the biggest thing that I've struggled with since being made redundant is that I felt like I kind of lost my identity of sorts you know your your job title is kind of like your pseudo identity when you introduce someone oh I work at this place or I do this whereas when you're in school 
you would be like, oh, I, I don't know, I love art and football, or you know, you would define yourself by your um, by your interests. Whereas nowadays, most of us define ourselves by our jobs, regardless of whether we like them or not. Um, so when you don't have one, <laughs> it's kind of like, well, who are you, and what do you have to offer? I think also as well, you maybe it's just the parties I'm going to, but a lot of the time people are trying to work out what they can gain from each other. So um, I think. I think, yeah, when it's other people who have yeah. freelance jobs with several titles, they try to work out a hierarchy, they try mm. to work out status where yeah. you are relative to them sometimes. And yes, possibly, is there something to be gained yeah. from speaking to you? Not everyone is like that, but we've all met that person who speaks to you, but they've got one eye over your shoulder. Yeah, for sure. And it's painful. And yeah, those those people are there for a certain reason. You do meet more and more of them the further you get out of like a staff job and you get in sort of a scarier place. Yeah. And how, yeah, how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Do you have to mentally tell yourself, well, I'm allowed to be here? Is it an imposter syndrome type thing? Um, I think it depends on the room I'm in. I mean, I'm, I'm actually really quite comfortable being the sort of outsider, shall we say. Um, I suppose that's always been my selling point. You know, I've always gone into jobs and been like, I've done this thing, but I'm interested in this and I can help I can you know help you or be a part of this company or whatever because I have this weird background that you guys don't have any you know um experience of so when I went into advertising it was like you know my first line of all of my applications was I'm not your usual maths nerd and so I was playing on the fact that I had a maths degree I had no experience whatsoever in advertising and I was like please hire me um so I don't know it worked worked, yeah it worked out it was it was good but I don't know like I'm quite comfortable being an outsider I think it's I think actually now there's a level of struggle in the sense that, you know, I, I am doing a lot of writing, I've written this book, and then I go into rooms with other authors and other writers, and I'm like, oh, I'm not, oh, I don't know what I've got to say anymore, like, I'm not, yes, right, should I be here, or am I good enough to be here, or have I, have, am I prolific enough to be here, or all these sorts of questions, um, but I don't know, I mean, I think the book has given me a whole lot of confidence, which is a very shallow thing to say in some respect. Um, but I think, you know, that feels like a real sort of stamp of approval as such. Whereas when you're free, when you're freelance, you've kind of got your, your bylines to rely on. You can reel off your bylines, but I don't know, everyone's, you're kind of going, oh, but I've only written one thing for that place. And does that really count? And oh, well, that was actually a sponsored ad on that place. And I don't know, you know, and so you're kind of going through everything in your head. But I don't know, I'm like, no, this is a real book. And I I managed to do it, so therefore, but maybe I shouldn't assign myself worth to that. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, how did the internet create all of your jobs then? You started out in the tech innovation lab at Ogilvy in advertising. Tell me about that a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, that job was basically, um, yeah, they had an innovation team, which his job was to, quote unquote, bring Ogilvy into the 21st century. That was the kind of mission, I suppose. Do you think you guys managed that? Um, yes and no probably not I mean it got shut down hence the redundancy so maybe not um but I think my job was essentially to just go around the world find startups talk to them and try oh yeah I mean it was it was an amazing job like the the it opened up my world and an incredible way I mean my jobs before that had been your sort of standard early career London jobs so you know for me that was the kind of the career making move shall we say um and my job was to, as I say, go meet people, go and speak on stage at conferences on behalf of the company. Um, I don't know, do a lot of inspiration stuff. So I'd be hosting events or conferences within the company to try and teach people about, I don't know, AI or internet things or whatever. It's all t- sort of tech related um, and bring in really interesting companies and startups to inspire people, but then hopefully to try and create partnerships. Um 
So I don't know. I mean, the internet, how did the internet change my job? I mean, it, well, it made it doable because there was no real way of tapping into that world as a complete newbie. So it kind of created it. Right. Yeah, completely. And, you know, after, after redundancy, like I think because a lot of my, I was doing a lot of speaking as a part of my job at Ogilvy. And so I was kind of known as a, well, I hate the term, but I suppose a bit of a thought leader within the advertising industry. And I was young and female and worked in tech. So, you know, you've kind of got that brand around you. And then when Ogilvy shut the department, it was like a very, um, shall we say, big story within advertising circles, you know, as in all the trade press. So I had a lot of people come to me over Twitter or over LinkedIn or whatever. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I was, you know, only four years into my career at that point. I was still pretty, you know, comparatively junior. But because of the way I suppose my job worked as a result of the internet and also the way that I was perceived online um, opened up a huge amount of opportunity. And now, I mean, I don't, I don't believe I could be doing what I'm doing now without the internet because I would have had to build up so you know pseudo credibility or so-called credibility based on sort of cv or years experience or so on and so forth whereas when you have you know you can put yourself out there you can put your ideas out there you can present yourself um truthfully and get the sort of core of you in a way that you couldn't really do before i don't believe um you know and at the end of the day i know that you know my twitter follower account um played into the decision of the publisher to take my book whether that's right or wrong I don't have that many followers on Twitter, but I have more than a couple of thousands. So I suppose they, they sort of see me as a credible person because I have these followers and that worked to my advantage. But, you know. Do you think there's stuff that people in staff jobs can do internally to raise their profile and to kind of stand oh, out? Because yeah. that can be quite difficult and be something that's really stressful for people in, in like yeah, full-time jobs. I mean, if that's what you want to do, I mean, it's, it's if, if you want more, there's always more to be done. I mean, when I was at Ogilvy, um, I started like a little mini newsletter internally because I wasn't really getting to work. This is before I was into the the, um, the lab job. This is before, I was just an account person on the American Express account. And I wasn't getting to do any really creative, cool stuff. And I wasn't getting to do tech or science. And I was like, well, I'm missing both of those. So why don't I present myself like that internally? And maybe I'll get to go on pitches or maybe I'll get to help out with new things or maybe I'll get to know people and then I can move company or whatever. So like I did that um, helped out with a, a conference about internet things, which is how I got the job in the innovation scheme. I just put my hand up and said, hey, do you need any volunteers? But, you know, that's not for everyone. Some people spend enough time at their desk and at the company and all of that, you know, it's hard because you, it's all unpaid and you can be quite resentful of the fact that you're doing all this extra stuff and for such a long time it doesn't get rewarded. And because my job that I was there and getting paid to do didn't include any of that, every time I'd go into you know, one of my reviews, my yearly reviews, they'd be like, yeah, you're, you're doing your job well. And I'd be like, cool, can I get promoted? And they're like, yeah, well, you're doing your stuff. Like these are your goals. I'm like, I'm hitting all of them and I'm doing all this extra stuff, but the other stuff didn't count as such. So there was a lot of frustration there, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have got that next job and I wouldn't be where I'm at now had I not put in all that work. So I suppose it's your kind of how satiable you are to having to do extra and hope that you're investing your time and energy and so on and so forth into something that's going to pay off eventually. It's trying to stand out, isn't it? Yeah. That thing is much harder these days. And, um, yeah, can you tell me a bit about just how that redundancy kind of felt and did it, did it kickstart you in a way that if you hadn't have been pushed, you might not have 
felt like right let's do this oh yeah definitely I mean so I've been doing this as I mentioned I was doing like a lot of speaking on behalf of the company and I had quite a lot of people say to me oh you're a good speaker like you know you can get paid to do this and da 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 and I was like well I can't on my Ogilvy contract because anything I get paid goes to the company um, and also I, I suppose didn't really believe it and I kind of looked into it a little bit and I was like oh could I be like a freelance speaker and I was like oh I don't really know if I want to do that and again I had never considered writing at this point so um, I don't know I hadn't really seen that path but then um, I mean, I got made redundant with a team. It was a small team, but so it didn't feel personal. Like it didn't, I don't think it really hit my ego in that much of a way. It didn't really hit my self-confidence in the sense that I knew I was good and I was worth something. Um, whereas a lot of people that I spoke to being made redundant, they've really taken it personally as in like, you know, they haven't been performing or whatever. Um, but because it was a whole team, I didn't have that. Um, and as I say, because it was this kind of thing that was, uh, you know, big in the advertising industry, I had a lot of inbound as a result of it. And, you know, I was lucky because my boss essentially refused to take a payout so that she could tell the story because um, she got treated pretty badly, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I was kind of quote unquote lucky as a result of that. But for me, I was looking for jobs afterwards. I was basically just saying to myself, okay, I'll take some of this freelance work because, you know, we got paid statutory payout. And so I essentially got about a month and a half's worth of pay. And it was like, well, I'm going to need to take this money because I can't pay my rent. I didn't have any savings. So um, it was, at, at the time, it was very much just a let's just get by. And it was only after about six months that I was like, the thing that's causing me the most stress in my life is trying to find another job. So why don't I just stop doing that and try this weird contracting freelance thing that I'm doing with all these weird jobs that weren't all writing. Some people asked me to write, some people asked for consulting. I did some teaching, science teaching for a little bit. Um, give it a shot, see if that makes my life any happier. And um, I don't know, I guess I just forgot to start looking for jobs again. And it's been three years, so here I am. Not looking for another one again, it's fine. No, no. So that's how you introduce yourself at parties. Yeah, it just takes a really long time. The party's done by the time I'm done. <laughs> Everyone's bored, walks away. <laughs> so, right, I'm going to get another whole seether out. Yeah, I was going to um, say, make sure you're... You can tell, you can tell it's time. Um, so speaking of redundancy, it's a lot more common these days and the kind of gig economy is becoming a thing. Lots of people going freelance. Um, what role do you think the internet has to play in kind of how we brand ourselves, how we hype ourselves up, the stories we tell about ourselves, and also uh, what emotions does self-branding bring up in ourselves? Because mm. they're kind of a reflection, but also an aspiration. And mm. sometimes we feel we fall short of them as well. There's a lot of that in like a writing, gotcha. freelancing life. Gotcha. Um, okay, lots of bits to that question. So, so I asked you 300 questions. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's I think, like oh, okay, well, the, I mean, the internet has been... But it's the same as hype, right? It's a tool. I think um, there's sort of two ways to look at how people can sort of self-brand on the internet nowadays. Um, yes, it's amazing to be able to show what you're capable of when you don't have the traditional form of experience, the X many years or this title or whatever. Um, and because you can, you know, create a website or get the blue tick on Twitter or whatever it is, credibility and the sort of currency that's out there with freelancing has kind of shifted um, or, or the currency of experience shall we say um, but then the other side of that coin is that there's quite a lot of I guess measurements and I say that with inverted commas for those listening on the podcast um, that 
are sort of assigned credibility they're not necessarily due so for instance um one of the biggest things that's criticized is the forbes 30 on 30 list right because mm. you know it's like well you have to apply in order to oh, i didn't get know all, that yeah so you've been on forbes 30 under 30 by the way no offense if you have i'm not trying i'm not slamming people to be honest but like you know that that's a really good example of where yeah so you have to apply you have to fill in a huge big application <coughs> form. You have to get references, all these other things. It's quite a thing so it's to awards, do. It's an awards entry. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's an award, it's award entry. And there's lots of people that are on the list who are amazing. But then there's people that are very, very good at kind of telling their story. And, you know, there's a lot of applications to go through and maybe not everyone gets checked. So it means that we have these kind of badges um, that are sometimes over kind of not overused but so there's a lot of meaning yes like yes imbued onto yeah. things that are not necessarily always due and you're you're seeing that particularly in a sort of tech startup world um there's been quite a few instances recently where founders have sort of been caught out so like there was someone recently who was on the forbes 30 and 30 list and she was like 35 <laughs> It was like simple things like that that kind of, and it's not that big of a deal because you're like, what is age? And she's still really accomplished. But the point I'm making is, I think that the internet, shall we say, or the ability to self-brand is both really, really positive for those that are awesome and can't show it in traditional ways, but then it can obviously be gamed so easily. I mean, if you're really good at SEO, like you're you're kind of nailing it online, right? I'm still (laughs) thinking of her and like, she turns up to the event and she has to like think up a new birthday. <laughs> well, just a like, different year, right? <laughs> like who was on Neighbours when she was watching at university? She has to think five years back. I mean, this is like that's quite a story, yeah. Well, but then do you? It's but a then film. Do you? But then the thing is, is do you? Because that's the point. Like this sort of stuff doesn't really get questioned as much. And I'm not. I don't. Again, I don't think everything's a conspiracy. I just. I always try and see things from both sides, and I suppose. For me personally, the internet has been crucial in getting me to the point that I am and getting what I believe is fair credibility for what I'm able to do. Um, but then, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just being that kind of looking on and seeing folk that I kind of, maybe I'm too competitive. I'm like, mm, really? Should they have got that thing? I'm not sure. Well, people always <laughs> like to put other people in hierarchies. That's yeah, why you get 30 to 30, you get the awards. And what's interesting is that what it's you, cutting through though as well. It's, it's, it's trying huge. to find the yeah. kind of nuggets of people because it is. It's also hard to find people. You know, people that are super amazing, super credible, super full of potential, able to write amazing things or whatever it is. And so you used to be like, oh, what university did you go to? Or that tells exactly. me X, Y, and Z exactly. about you. But does it? And then it's like journalists love saying their bylines in order of what we think is the most read or the most right. important right, 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 publication. Right. And just looking at that, when someone says New York Times, blah blah, blah you're like, oh, this tells me a lot about you. And I, and I think like I don't say this in the sense of like you know i think we can within the sort particularly the the sort of freelance writer london community that i've kind of know a few people in we can be way too hard ourselves also think particularly women way too hard on ourselves where we're saying oh i wrote this thing for the guardian once but it was three years ago so i'm not sure that really counts and so i shouldn't you know and that for me i'm like no own it you did that that's amazing and it's you know and you need to be able to show what you're you're worthy of so i don't mean it in those sort of senses i suppose what i mean is you've got people like i don't know gary vaynerchuk who i just think is a person that's, I don't Is everyone necessarily aware of like, Gary you know, Gary V. Oh, I just, How do we describe him? Oh, he's a, a, a marketing hype man. I mean, he kind of he was got well known because his agency did quite well, and then he kind of became the thought leader within marketing. And his videos are very like 
uh, I don't know inspirational and very Mer- it's very no, Mer- it's very American it's very just like this is all you have to do in order to be successful kind of like Tony Robbins right and I think that's where it becomes the internet becomes problematic in the sense that the, a lot of people kind of place inspiration aspiration da 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 on people that have big followings and it's like we don't always necessarily know how someone has got a certain following and I, particularly from my perspective I'm thinking if those messages are not correct or hyped up or whatever, that's when it becomes dangerous. You know, and they become amplified. So having these yeah, big exactly. followings means that whatever they say on Twitter or whatever, yeah, is then go- going out to millions of people. I mean, look at Elon Musk. Like he he tweet like lots of journalists wouldn't report on him because he literally sends his haters or well, his fans who become haters of said journalist on them if they write one critical piece about him. He has a lot of power in that respect. Um, Any and Elon Musk stands in the room? I mean, he's, 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 he's done cool things, but he's also problematic in many ways. And I think that's, that's what I mean. I think sometimes the internet kind of can polarise the way we think about things and doesn't allow for nuance and doesn't, you know... we. <laughs> some things can get oversimplified and it kind of allows someone like him to run free because yeah he's smart there are things he can do but maybe emotionally he, he runs all over the place a little bit and the internet kind of well i mean he's both. i mean he's a ceo of like however many companies like he's he's probably you know he's a busy man he's got a lot to think about got rhymes to look after <laughs> but um yeah i don't know i think it's I, I, again i think it comes back to like maybe the redefinition of what we think of success is and you know this idea of having a lot of followers or being famous internet famous or um and being famous being for a listened. certain age the first yes. the 30 yeah yeah is really prevalent in writing yeah like the best novelists under 30 yes all of this stuff and it's huge in tech tech startup yeah it's, it's humongous as well. humongous and why is it such a big deal to have success for a certain age i mean you got me i don't know i mean i'm still under 30 so you know i've still got time um but you know is, is that way that even that it's like what does that even mean you know and um like, i don't know i think it's just always people are always trying to search for shortcuts um in you know how to understand the world or how to place how to make decisions right we've got too much to think about so it's like how do we assign our inspiration or our credibility or our um knowledge or our belief um when you've got all these different conflicting pieces of information you have to find some kind of shortcut to do it yeah they're really young great i'm impressed yeah they're young but they've done that so therefore um Mm. or they're young and they have x many followers or you know yeah you often get a lot of guidance when judging awards and things i don't don't mean you personally like in general my experience and so you do have to come up with your own parameters of how i'm judging this and then you get to the group situation but it's you and three other judges you've all got different boundaries (laughs) and you're all just like oh i did not think you were gonna say that and really that guy and i've had all these situations recently it's so interesting you're like no one has sat down and gone you're looking for this this and this generally like maybe in the odd awards kind of situation but judges are kind of left to kind of go mm, that one yeah yeah and, and then that person and then try and explain it after yeah and then usually when someone ends up on a 30 under 30 list or with an award they tend to add more awards be on more lists yes and it, they the hype yes. builds up around them yes precisely i mean it's one of the things i actually think a lot about with forbes because I'm, I'm one of their contributors and i cover deep tech startups in, in europe and um, I was really thrilled when they asked me to do this, A, because not many people take deep tech stories, um, and B, I was like, oh, it's a good byline, and people trust it, and all that jazz. Um, and, you know, not long after I started 
onboarding with them, I was on the tube and I saw an advert for a startup and it had a sentence and then Forbes next to it. And I was like, God, I'm not sure how I feel about something I'm writing about a company that's completely taken out of context because it's just one sentence and Forbes is put next to it. And I don't know, like it really made me reflect on, particularly within the startup world, the power that... um, one freelance writer who happens to think a company's kind of interesting has um particularly Forbes doesn't edit so you know (laughs) is that too with contributors I mean they do with staff yeah you only know this stuff when you work for these places right Mm. um so oh yeah so what does social media add to self-branding something we've spoken about before um is the value of letting your audience see your struggle and your vulnerabilities um, you know, I'm, I'm writing today and I'm really struggling. And actually, there was a New York Times report the other day, Taylor Lawrence, who does mm, all the like digital her. culture stuff. And she wrote a tweet saying, I'm really struggling today. I really wish writing was a bit part... Like, it was slightly yes. tongue-in-cheek, right? Yes, it got yes. loads... It got a lot of I think interest. I retweeted that. And, um, and I felt for her when I read it. I didn't feel the need to engage with her tweet. I was like, fair, yeah, there were some bad days. And the people were getting very, like, you're in such a lucky position to be able to jealous mm. of your job. And then she felt she had to explain herself and said she had dyslexia. Mm. And, you know, she found these things hard. And I just thought, I don't think she has to explain herself. No. But there was this honest bit of emotion from her. And then people were, like, judging her quite mm. harshly. And she felt the need to reveal these things about herself. It's absolutely fascinating that in social media... It, it can be a window onto the struggle you're having to get into your job, but then it can force you to stand at the window and be like, I'm sorry, I've got these problems. Do yeah. you want more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's everyone has the right to use their social media in any way they choose. I think one of the things I've thought a lot about sort of after I became freelance was like, is my social media like a business outlet or is it a personal page that I'm putting my own stuff on? Um, And I think my Twitter is probably closer to professional because of the nature of being a writer is where you post your stuff, where you get pictures and all that sort of thing. LinkedIn is obviously very professional. And then it's like, well, is Instagram personal but oh it's a it's a sales channel. I might be able to, you know, um what what is Facebook? So I, I don't know, like I I don't, but then I'm conscious as well. Like I certainly don't tend to complain. I travel a lot with my work, as you know, and I tend to not complain about traveling because I know that I'm, well, A, I I do really love traveling with my work. um, And B, I know that it was something I really aspired to and I really wanted for such a long time when I was younger. um, That it probably would come across a bit spiteful, but at the same time, it is really annoying when like, you know, your plane's delayed or you know you don't get the seat you wanted or whatever like and so I I don't know I mean I think that for me it's I kind of try and think about it as like am I being useful in putting this out to myself or to others um but I mean maybe I probably overthink it in some sense I think a lot of people just kind of are who they are and they have the absolute right to do that but it's interesting. I think we can also be quite judgmental of other people. You know, I have some friends that have online businesses and a lot of their sort of persona online is as the founder of this business, as it's quite different to who they are sort of, you know, in real life. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's getting them sales and that's what they want to do. And you've got, yeah, you know, it's the hustle, right? <laughs> they tend to have inspirational quotes. Yeah. On there. Who's yeah. a big fan of an inspirational quote on Instagram? Yeah. yeah, yeah hey, they do it. well, you know, it says they're, they're good for engagement, you know? I mean, I don't do them either, but like, I think it's, you know, I understand why people do. It makes sense. Um, but I don't know. It's something I've been thinking a lot about with my Instagram. Cause I'm like, 
there's a lot of readers on Instagram. It's like a really, really big channel for book people. Um, I have a book coming out in April, so I'm kind of like, well, it would kind of be silly to not try and kind of connect with people that might be interested in my book. Um, but then it kind of, I don't know, feels so cynical doing it that way. Um, so I don't know. I, I just try and put out stuff that feels real. Um, and at the same time, I make sure I'm kind of, and again, I, I don't ha- I'm thinking to myself, why do you have to justify yourself? But I try and put stuff out that's helpful. So like the YouTube uh, channel and stuff, because I feel like, well, if I'm going to be like promoting a hold of stuff and trying to get people to buy my book, it, the least I can do is try and <laughs> give them something in return that isn't yeah. just the book, you know. Um, but then maybe that's just my way of not being harsh on myself. Well, actually, with getting onto the book, these days, it's something I didn't know about until recently, is that you have to do your own publicity. That's really big. Yeah. Part of what you bring to certainly non-fiction book writing is, this is the audience I have. This is the audience I've built up from podcasting and from writing. Like That's what a publisher asks for from yeah. you. And they don't have as much time or money to put into the publicity for you doing it yourself. Um, also, there's a whole pre-order stuff. So mm. your book is actually out in April. Mm. But when did it first go on pre-order? Um, uh, it went live on Amazon about a month ago, um, maybe even longer than that, but it's not even, I mean, the cover is not on Amazon, the actual blurb is not there, it's, it's there, people can, people have pre-ordered it, um, but it's more just, have you really, pal? Yeah. Um, I was going to say, it's mainly just friends and family, um, but... Which is interesting that yeah. it's your first audience, we can Yeah, see of course, yeah. of course, but um, yeah, no, pre-ordering is like really interesting because of the way, mm. um... It's, 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 economics of books is so fascinating as an industry but um basically the way the uh, lists so like sunday times bestseller lists or the new york times bestseller list, whatever they um operate on a week-on-week basis and it starts on a sunday to sunday or something like that um and when your book launches any that's pre-ordered all of those sales count basically on the day that it releases so even if you've had a pre-order five months before one month before three days before it all counts on that date like for me april 23rd and so if you want to get onto one of the lists a really good strategy is to try and get the people that are going to buy your book anyway to pre-order it so that's kind of a guaranteed sale in your first week um and the idea is if you get on the list then it kind of start selling itself because of the kind of marketing it gets by being on the list um, it starts showing up in people's like suggested books I find yeah. the pre-order absolutely fascinating because it's like pushing back even further the publicity you have to do for the book mm. and that seems to go hand in hand with the showing the making of the book on social yeah, media so people yeah. do like hashtag I'm writing yes. I'm having a bad day writing on social on, on Instagram stories I'm writing the London Library today or whichever yes. place yeah, yeah, yeah. and it does seem to go along with this like build up to there is yeah. going to be a book one day and yeah. please pre-order and, and help this I think, happen. I think a lot of it as well is that, I mean, I, I wasn't really doing that much of that sort of at the early part of the process. Um, but the minute it kind of, you know, was released in the sort of press and I shared that, you know, I had, had got the deal, you know, the amount of people that messaged being like, well, obviously there's a lot of really nice people saying congrats, but then I had loads of people being like, how did you do that? How did you get an this agent? How did you, you know, it was ins- it, more than anything else Strangers I've ever done. Strangers. Strangers. Come across the internet and ask yeah. for your advice. Yeah. And sometimes contacts. Yeah, it can't, I mean, if anyone, anyone and everyone. I mean, at the end of the day, I think particularly with books, like there's a level of, 
um, for lack of a better word, like desperation of people who know they really, really want to do it and they have to try and find a way. And it is, it is hard. So if you have any kind of connection to someone, a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to ask them because that might give me the golden ticket to do it or whatever. Um, so I don't know, there was quite a lot of that, but there was also just a lot of my friends that were really interested in the process, you know, particularly the like, how do you actually write a book? Like, how would you do that? So I started just, and it was also a boredom because when I got to the point where I was actually writing, I was tearing my hair out. And so I would start my day by doing like a little Instagram story video thing, being like, today I'm going to be working on this and I'm worried about that and I've got to do this interview. And it was just putting out there because it was to keep myself accountable and because I had people asking and I didn't have time to reply to everyone because I had to be writing. Um, and that just did really well. I had a lot of people being like, oh, this is so interesting. Please keep telling us like what's next. When, when is the cover done? Like a lot of people are quite interested in the process, even if they're not interested in writing books. Um, so that was kind of what started it. And I very quickly realized that this was something that, as you mentioned, I'm going to have to do my own publicity. Readers and other writers are the sort of people that buy books um, more than sort of any other audience. So there's a sort of cynical angle there where I'm like, well, if I'm playing a role and being helpful in this kind of industry, um, you're building an audience to some degree. And also because like the book I'm working on, the next book I'm working on is actually not really about science and tech. So if I build up a kind of, audience that's not just science and tech people I'll I'll really struggle to sell a book that's not about science tech if anyone only people that listen to me are science tech people so um but also it, it, I don't know I feel like I'm always a sort of person that doesn't really come through an industry as a junior and kind of you know learn how things work over a long period of time I'm quite good at like googling an industry and trying to work out how it works and then kind of coming in from a strange angle shall we say um, and I feel like of all the industries I've worked in, the publishing industry has been the, the most difficult to understand. And particularly because the help that's out there for books is either um, it's either fiction focused, memoir, narrative nonfiction or business fiction. There's loads and loads of help and resources for those three. Um, but there's almost nothing for like if you want to write a science book because... Or, or, you know, an economics book or a politics book or whatever, these kind of polemics. Um, and I think the reason is because most people who do it is because they've been in a position of kind of expertise. You know, they were a professor of this or they've been a CEO of that or a journalist for a long time and they get approached. Whereas if you're trying to do it from the outside, you know, there's you're, you don't tend to get asked. And so I kind of just felt that it was important to kind of... Put that, I believe there should be more polemics written by young women, for instance. I don't think, you know, it's right that it's just people getting asked because they're older, kind of, quote-unquote, more experienced or white and male. Um, and what's, what's a polemic kind of non-fiction bit? What is I mean, if you take, take to anything by Malcolm Gladwell, um, Sapiens by Harari. So an idea of how the world should work. It's like, like a, a big, big idea. idea. Yeah, some people call it big idea non-fiction. Um, it's basically where you're trying to say, like, this is a thought that I have and it's relatively simple, arguably. And then you kind of go through a whole of chapters telling a sort of story that weaves narrative, it weaves kind of evidence, it weaves the story of the author as well, has characters as such, so non-fiction. Um, but it kind of convinces the reader of something and you kind of go on a sort of journey of changing your viewpoint on the world as a result. Um, and so mine fits in that kind of genre shall we say but there's not I found that there weren't really that many women and not very many young people that were other authors of that kind of ilk um and I don't know I think it's a shame because it, it's a lot of work but um 
I don't know. I think a lot of people are very, very capable of doing it and they just don't know that they can. And I think in a digital age as well, knowledge isn't all concentrated in right. people who have 30 or 50 years. And... Well, and I think there's something to be said for looking at things from different angles and not kind of, you know, I think it's amazing to get expert knowledge out there and that's needed and that won't stop happening. I don't need to campaign for that. Um, but I do think there's something worth being said where you take a topic and then go I'm gonna kind of look at it from this angle and see if I can come to some conclusion about it and I mean at the end of the day that's kind of the job of a journalist most of the time um and I I think that there's a hunger for this kind of writing at the moment um this kind of uh, letting you try and understand a topic more deeply than just the facts um and a lot of that stuff just doesn't get commissioned as much um the internet moves too quickly for those ideas to maybe maybe i don't know i mean the whole point of a polemic is you're meant to write something that lasts a really long time um I, you know i, you know, I have high hopes for my book but you know it's where they're popular yeah exactly move so quickly yeah they still mean something for a long time yeah so we've come to the end and what we do um, on every episode of freelance pod is have three top tips from my guest for someone who might want to um, follow it in your footsteps so do you have three top tips oh my goodness I should have appeared before I came Um, I forgot about this okay I think um, the first one that I normally say is don't do your time um I kind of hate this idea that you have to be in a position or a job or a certain title for a certain amount of time before you're quote unquote allowed to progress or, you know, you've got the credibility, you've got the three years on your CV. Um, I just, I say don't do your time because I believe a job is a job and not a prison sentence. Um, So that's one thing. Um, The second thing is, it sounds a bit silly, but like you can literally Google anything. Like you really can. I mean, I... I got my agent for my book from Googling. Like I Googled another author that I kind of thought I'm not the same as him, but I'm kind of in the same sort of realm. And so I just typed in Jamie Bartlett agent and then I found their website and then I emailed them. Like that is genuinely how I did it. And obviously there's other stuff that comes into that, but the point I'm making is you can learn how things work and you can, you don't necessarily have to email someone and ask like if you're a good internet sleuth you can i think you can work out how anything works what you're saying is the other 50 percent of the internet who hasn't emailed you to say how'd you get your agent yet yeah just google it just google it seriously no no but i mean no i mean i understand that it's hard but at the same time i do think the stories are out there people are sharing these things you know it's not just about reading the industry kind of uh, instructions there's lots of people that share their stories and you can find them if you spend a bit of time um third piece of advice it's always the hardest one I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I have a lot of people kind of, um, I have a lot of people ask me about how to get into writing. And I always find it really funny when they ask me this because I really don't see, other than the book, I really don't see myself as a very prolific writer. Other I know, than, I know, I know, I know. How many words are there? I know, I know, it's 109,000. Anyway, um, it's, it's, I know, other than the book, I, I kind of don't think of myself as this really prolific writer. And, you know, but anyway, the biggest piece of advice I always have for that, because I know there's probably quite a lot of freelance writers listening, is that literally anybody can pitch. And this is something that took me a really long time to work out. Like, editors... <laughs> you can find their email on the internet like unbelievably easily and they will take stories from anyone because at the end of the day they're trying to fill their newspapers as long as it's a good or their internet you know spaces it's like pixels or whatever um 
I think it took me a really long time to accept that I didn't have to have a journalism degree. I didn't have to work at the Times or whatever for how many years. I didn't have to have done any of that stuff. I just had to write a pitch in a nice way and send it. Um, and there's like a million guides online on how to pitch. So I, I, that's always the first thing I say to people is like, if you want to do journalism, you know, be my guest, but I have no experience on that. But literally anyone can pitch. You don't have to be what you it's funny because I say this you don't have to be what you perceive to be a writer in order to be a writer if you write you're a writer um, I should really listen to my own advice maybe I don't know <laughs> well thank you so much for being my guest in this edition of Freelance Pod and thanks to the audience for listening to us and that's it Woo! <laughs> he finds he's going to the bar now yeah <laughs> bar time thank you let's do it thank you good job for surviving on your, I didn't on your have holes. the full lot guys so it's a, it's a good one <laughs> Oh my god, we we managed. We managed. We uh, thank you, Thank Thank you you guys for coming. Thanks so much to Gemma Milne for joining me for the live show at the Boulevard Theatre last year. And I've got to give a shout out to those hall soothers. They really got me through that show. I was very ill, but the show had to go on. Anyway, so Freelance Pod is going to be monthly from now on. So look out for another episode next month. And um, yeah, I always love to hear what you think of the episodes. Please do give me a shout over Twitter or Instagram or whatever you fancy. All of those handles will be in the show notes. And um, please stay well, look after yourselves. Try to stay indoors if you can bear it. And hopefully by the time the next episode goes out, we'll be in a much better place in the world. Fingers crossed. All right, until next time. Goodbye.